Remember, there are no shortcuts, son. Quick buck artists come and go with every bull market, but the steady players make it through the bear markets. I just fade I away. Feel it. Roll up, roll up, hold up, hold up. Mix popping, sediment dropping, stock shaking up. Falling and we can't get up. Calling some backup. Hurry up. Gotta get right. Hold tight. Bring the fight to the light. Make it real bright. Put things into focus. This ain't hocus pocus. We need bear market defenses. Don't be swinging for the fences. I'll rise for 99. October's his time. We gotta cover our bases. Prepare for all cases. Recognize, reposition, realign, and reassess. Set ourselves up for success on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. YCharts aims to help you achieve all of your investing goals packed into one simple solution. With YCharts, stay ahead of market movements with a personalized market dashboard, intraday pricing, and over a quarter million economic indicators. You'll always stay tapped into the market. And for more information, start a free trial at YCharts.com or follow YCharts at YCharts on Twitter. So long September and don't let the door hit you on the way out. Last month was particularly brutal for investors. The Dow tumbled 8.8%, the S&P 500 fell 9.3%, and the Nasdaq slid a cold 10.5%. Last Friday was also the final day of the third quarter, and it was the first three-quarter losing streak for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq since 2009, losing 5.3% and 4.1% respectively. The Dow dropped 6.7% last quarter, its first three quarters in a row of losses since 2015. The S&P 500 is now down 24.8% percent year to date. Since World War II, only 1974 and 2002 saw worse starts to a year, but both years saw the S&P 500 gain 7.9% in the fourth quarter. We're seeing moves in treasury prices and yields we haven't seen in 15 years, back when the global economy was heading into a freefall. The one, two, three, five, and seven-year treasury yields all closed above 4% last Friday. The last time that happened was in October of 2007. Corporate bond yields spiked as well, with high-yield corporate bonds offering 9.33%. That's the highest yield since April of 2020, while investment-grade bonds are yielding 5.62%, the highest level since August of 2009. Those are all signs of intense fear and uncertainty among investors. They see those higher interest rates coming and they are losing confidence in the Fed's ability to thwart a recession. As one money manager put it to me last week, the Fed's mindset now is whatever it breaks, not whatever it takes to bring down inflation. And that leads us to our big three for the week. As the Fed keeps talking tough and hiking rates, here are a few of the most popular questions we've been getting on Investopedia over the past two weeks. How do I buy treasury bonds? How are treasury bills taxed? What are the top four government bond ETFs? That's right. Investors, especially retail investors, are getting back into bonds, especially short-term government bonds. The yield drifting higher is like the smell of fresh apple pie wafting outside the kitchen window on an autumn afternoon. It smells so good, and with yields over 3.5%, it feels pretty safe. Over the past month, funds and ETFs that invest in short-term government bonds have added an average of $4.4 billion a week, according to Refinitiv Lipper. Aside from the stock market crash in late March of 2020, that's the fastest clip on record going all the way back to 1993. And just in case you're wondering how to buy short-term treasury bonds, 
You can buy them directly from the U.S. government through Treasury Direct. Treasury Direct is an electronic marketplace and online account system where investors can buy, hold, and redeem eligible book entry Treasury securities. Investors with Treasury Direct accounts can participate in Treasury debt auctions and purchase debt securities, including U.S. savings bonds, directly from the U.S. Treasury. It takes about 20 minutes to set up an account, and I will drop our step-by-step guide on Investopedia into the show notes for your review. Investors with existing brokerage accounts, either online or through their broker or advisor can buy short-term U.S. government bonds on the secondary market through index funds or ETFs. The top short-term U.S. Treasury ETFs as measured by assets under management, according to YCharts, the iShares 1-3-year to three year Treasury bond ETF, ticker SHY, S-H-Y, the Vanguard short-term Treasury ETF, ticker B-G-S-H, and the Schwab short-term Treasury ETF, ticker S-C-H-O. And that leads us to number two. How about some good news? And this is brought to us by the month of October, my favorite month of the year since my birthday falls in it, but I also love me some autumn leaves and a cozy sweater. October is known as a bear market killer. We'll get into more of that with Ryan Dietrich in a few minutes, but the gist of it is that following terrible Septembers, when the S&P 500 declines 7% or more, the market rises about 0.5% on average in October and sees a median gain of 1.81%. That's better than the averages for all Octobers. October is positive in years following an outside September loss 54.55% of the time versus 57.45% of the time for all Octobers. In addition, the best October returns have historically occurred when the S&P 500 starts the month below its 200-day average, and that, my friends, is currently the case. Now, we know that past performance guarantees absolutely nothing, and we shouldn't build our investing strategies around monthly patterns alone. And to be sure, some of the darkest days in the market have occurred in October, which gives my favorite month its own term page on Investopedia. The October effect. There was the Panic of 1907, Black Tuesday in 1929, Black Thursday in 1929, Black Monday in 1929, and Black Monday in 1987. Those were terrifying days that happened to fall in the 10th month of the year. But it's also important to remember that October is also the last month of the worst six months of the year on average. The returns from November to April are historically much stronger. Investors will be put to the test this month with third quarter earnings reports and waves of uncertainty crashing all over the planet. And number three, how are you feeling? I'm kind of worried, I'll admit it. And according to Investopedia's most recent investor sentiment survey of our daily newsletter readers and some of our listeners, you are too. In fact, you're as worried as you've been since late March of 2020. We started this survey in early 2020, so we've had our finger on the pulse of investor sentiment throughout this wild ride. And here are some of the latest results from our most recent survey. Over 20% are very worried about the market. That's the highest level of concern since May of 2021. 47% expect further losses of at least 5% or more in the next six months, Only 10% are expecting gains of 5% or more, and 63% say they're just waiting it out, while 15% say they're selling stocks at a loss. That hurts. What is everybody worried about? Inflation, recession, and rising interest rates, the hydra of economic forces that have been chasing us around all year. And why are investors investing less? Well, the top choice was fears that the market will fall more, followed by worries about a recession, and folks say they have less to invest due to inflation, and 19% said they're contributing to an emergency cash fund. We like to see that. And then we asked this question, and we've been asking this for several months. What would you do with an extra $10,000? Cash savings was the most popular choice for the first time since we started asking that question. 
followed by buying individual stocks, buying index funds, and paying down debt. And Investopedia readers are not alone. Just about every other investing sentiment survey is flashing the same warning sirens. The American Association of Individual Investors Weekly Sentiment Survey shows bears outweigh bulls three to one. Last week's bullish sentiment ranks among the 50th lowest in the survey's history. Optimism is below its historical average of 38% for the 45th consecutive week they've been doing that survey, and they've been doing that survey for a very long time. And these surveys, though, they can be contrarian indicators. The lower the sentiment, the more likely markets might rebound. At least that's how it used to work. It's like that old saying, it's always darkest before the light. The problem is that we just don't know if we're fearful enough. The average bear market drop is 34% and lasts 290 days. There's room and time for more declines. But if you're in for the long term, take the opportunity to make sure your portfolio is set up to withstand more pain, but it's positioned for a rebound when the time comes. This bear market is also leaving some bargains in its wake, so it's a great time to make a shopping list and dollar cost average your way in if you have the time and money to do so. You can also just do nothing. Just stay the course and wait it out. Let's get set up for the week ahead. And it starts with an emergency closed door meeting called by the U.S. Federal Reserve for Monday. We're still waiting on details about what it's all about, but it might have something to do with Credit Suisse. Shares of the European Investment Bank plunged nearly 10% this morning after the Financial Times reported the Swiss bank's executives are in talks with its major investors to reassure them amid rising concerns over its financial health. The Fed may be circling the wagons to make sure Credit Suisse's problems do not spread throughout the global financial system and create a Lehman Brothers type moment. Beyond that, the jobs market is in full focus this week. We'll get the August job openings and labor turnover survey on Wednesday, the JOLTS report, private sector payrolls from ADP on Thursday, and weekly jobless claims on Thursday as well, and then on Friday, the September non-farm payrolls report. For September, economists expect around 250,000 job gains, according to FactSet, which will be down from the 315,000 jobs added in August. An increase of 250,000 would be the smallest gain since December of 2020, when employment shrank by 115,000 jobs. Remember, the strength of the U.S. labor market is one of the lonely bright lights the Fed has been pointing to as a sign of strength in the U.S. economy. The unemployment rate at 3.7% is right in the Fed's sweet spot for maximum employment, one of its key mandates along with price stability. Prices, though, are anything but stable, with the PCE or Personal Consumption Expenditures Index clocking in at a 7.4% annualized rate in September. Consumers keep spending, though, as consumer spending ticked up 0.1% last month. The OPEC Plus Group will meet this Wednesday to consider cutting output. Early reports are that the group, which includes Russia, will consider cutting output by more than 1 million barrels per day. That's a big change in tune from just a few months ago when $125 a barrel oil was causing some drum banging over supply increases. Crude oil prices have fallen 40% from their March highs as traders bet on a global slowdown. A few earnings reports to peep this week, including Levi Strauss, Food Giant Conagra, Constellation, brands and Tilray. We'll also get a better sense of the damage and cost left in the wake of Hurricane Ian's destruction last week. Electricity for around 2.5 million customers in Florida was knocked offline, while personnel were evacuated from 14 Gulf Coast rigs, halting about 11% of the region's oil output. Economic losses in the area may exceed $45 billion if current forecasts come to pass, which would make Ian the eighth costliest U.S. hurricane. 
We know the stats. We know the issues. We know we have to have perspective when we are in bear markets, but it still doesn't make it any easier on our psyches as investors. Our flight or fight instincts are raging right now as we contemplate the prospect of more losses, a recession, a long and painful bear market, and all the nastiness that comes with it. You know what I do when I feel this way? I seek out Ryan Dietrich's feed on Twitter, or I go directly to his blog, and I take the elevator to 50,000 feet to see what Ryan sees. And you know what? It makes me feel better, smarter, more equipped to handle the market turbulence. Ryan, in one of the biggest free agent signings since Kevin Durant was picked up by the Golden State Warriors back in 2016, is now the chief strategist for the Carson Group. He's a fan favorite here on The Express and a good friend to Investopedia. Welcome back to the show, Cincinnati's finest, Ryan Dietrich. Hey, Caleb, you just compared me to Kevin Durant. I'm not I'm not sure if I'm in that league, but that's an honor. And I'm I'm glad to be back. And I think I've been with Carson Group as their chief market strategist about two months now, approximately. And I'll just say this. So they're they're a large RAA, almost a fintech company. We've got over 300 advisors. And you and I hung out last uh, couple weeks ago in Vegas at one of our big conferences called Excel. I'm loving it. I think I'm in uh, the, the the place I should be, the RIA space, and I am having a blast. I'm just glad to be back with you, man. We're talking on the final day of the third quarter, thankfully, because it's been one of the worst quarters for stocks and bonds since 2020 and 2008, and the fourth worst three-quarter start to a year in the history of the stock market, right? No big deal. You put out a great blog this week, 10 Answers to Questions About Bear Markets. We're going to link to it in the show notes, but I want to dig a little bit deeper with you on a few of those answers. Are you ready? I think so. Let's, let's go. Let's give it a shot. Let's do it. You wrote it. So you you asked this question, why shouldn't I sell everything right now? And I think a lot of investors are asking themselves that question. Now we know and we counsel folks here, you don't sell in the middle of a downturn or when things seem so desperate right now, that's not the right play. But for folks who are like, I just don't like the prospect six, 12, 18 months out, what do you tell them? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the past, right? What's the market doing? It's looking forward is the first thing. Now I'll put it like this, Caleb. I think I maybe talked about with you when I was on, you know, last time, a while back. Midterm years historically aren't that great the first three quarters. Now, I get it. This quarter is worse than probably most people expected, including me this year so far. But again, a weak midterm is not out of the ordinary. What also isn't out of the ordinary is a pretty good bounce in a fourth quarter of a midterm year. October is the best month of the year during a midterm year. And oh, by the way, when September gets killed, like it is this year, October actually does even better. So another thing I think about October, just for, for listeners and people following history, October is called a bear market killer. You look at history, 74, 2002, 2011, 94, 98, there have been a bunch of big bottoms, if you will, bear market killers in a month of October. In fact, I looked, there have been six different bear markets that ended in the month of October out of the last 17 bear markets. Now, maybe it's random, maybe it's not. I don't think so, because historically, August, September can be rocky, and then you can make that low, and then the feel-good time of the year, the fourth quarter can come in. One more thing, and then you know we can talk a little more here. You can ask me the next question, but you know why should someone hold now? They've just felt, honestly... You know, really, really decimated in some cases, right? This is one of the worst years for a 60-40 portfolio we've ever seen. 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Bonds are down a lot. Usually when stocks are down, bonds are up. We're not getting that this year. But you just look at things like market sentiment, right? Put-to-call ratios are finally starting to get the levels we've seen at major lows. The AAII sentiment poll had 60% bears two weeks in a row. For the first time in history. And then other sentiment polls, I whatever, they're out there. People are scared, and rightfully so, 
But when everyone's on one side of the boat, opportunity can be there. Believe me, it doesn't feel like there's much opportunity here, but I've used this quote before, maybe on this show. You know, the stock market's the only place things go on sale and everyone runs out of the store screaming. For longer-term investors, there are some incredible companies that are on sale. Doesn't mean the lows are in, but are on sale that one, three, five years from now, this is probably going to be an opportunity, and it's going to help people reach their long-term investment goals by not panicking here, but using it as an opportunity. It's not like, Brian, that means that we should go back to the recipe that was working for us the past 10 or 15 years, because we were in a very low interest rate environment. We had this incredible run of great growth tech stocks, uh, mega cap tech stocks. Some of that may work, but you got to look and think a little bit differently about where we are in terms of the economy right now, what the projection is going forward. So it's not like the old recipe is going to work this time around. Am I correct on that? No, you're right. I mean, that's one of the things. I mean, I share a lot of stats and figures, and sometimes I just share them because I think they're interesting. Doesn't even mean I'm I think it's interesting, so I share it, you know, kind of thinking out loud sometimes on social media. And one of the number one replies is, yeah, but, you know, the four most dangerous words, right? This time is different. So said Sir John Templeton, but it kind of is because the Fed is aggressively hiking and it's not just the Fed. It's it's all around the globe, excluding China and excluding Japan. So there's clearly the punch bowl, you could say, has been taken away. Now, I'll just say this about the Fed. I'm not a Fed basher or Fed apologist. I like to think I'm, you know, just kind of looking down the middle here. In June of 21, the Fed, when you look at their dot plots, right, they were looking at like maybe maybe one hike this year, okay? One hike. That was in June of 21. We've had the most aggressive rate hiking that we've ever seen so far this year, fastest to you know up over 3% ever. So the Fed's not perfect. Now the Fed's all hawkish, all right? We get it. Even Kashkari, the biggest dove who was almost like making fun of the idea there could be inflation this time two years ago, now he's buying in. Believe me, Kashkari's smarter than I'll ever be. I'm just saying... Everyone's now on one side. The Fed's not always right, is what I want to say. So I think I'm going to say, I know you know the PCE number came in a little hot. We've seen some sticky inflation data. But still, we're optimistic that if inflation can start to roll over, we think it can. I mean, look at energy prices. Look at chicken wings. You know, look at rents. Rents finally are starting to slow down a little bit. Now, rents take like six to nine months to even make its way into the inflation data. So we think there's some good signs inflation's starting to, going to start coming down. And that could be the positive for the Fed that is super hawkish now, just as dovish as they were two years ago. Uh, or maybe it was called about a year ago, I guess is what I should say, a year and a half ago or so. And the bottom line is that. I guess, well, wow, is November, November. It was about a year ago. November is when the Fed finally turned around and became a little more hawkish. And um, anyway, and then we all know what happened since then. But I just don't think the Fed is as perfect as people think. So believe me, the market's the market. The market's what matters when you get your statements. I get that. We get that. But the Fed very well could uh, change your tune this time six months from now if inflation comes back, and that's our base case. Different story, different narrative, different continent, but we just saw the Bank of England change its tune, maybe after a policy goof, deciding that they were going to become a buyer of bonds again after they had a big route in their bond market, given the announcements from the Trust Administration. But is there a moral hazard out there, and I think a lot of people argue that there may be, may not be, where if things do get much worse, the Fed is going to reverse course just so the capital markets don't melt down like they did back in 2007, 2008. Do they have to come to the rescue? I think they might have to. I mean, their job is price stability, right? I mean, we're seeing some of the most volatile price, prices we've ever seen. So they might they might kind of have to do something there. And it doesn't mean they're going to start immediately cutting rates, I don't think. I mean, they can do some different things. You know, I mean, Operation Twist way back in the day, no one quite saw that coming. Maybe they've got something in their tool book that they could dust off if that needs to happen. But I'll tell you, we, we, you know, believe me, the economy, I mean, somebody just kind of bought a house. The housing market is changing. 
changing, right? You could argue the housing market's in a recession, you know, what we're seeing. Manufacturing's teetering with the recession. Services numbers haven't been all that great. But then you've got employment strong, you got industrial production strong. And honestly, the consumer, as bad as things are, is still out there spending money and still pretty healthy. So we do not see a recession. Now, here I'm going to put a bow on this. I like, believe me, the inverted yield curve, the last eight recessions all had an inverted yield curve ahead of time. Sometimes it took a couple of years for that recession. So sure, the Kevin Durant thing, you know, the shot clock has started here on a potential recession. I mean, it's tomorrow, but look at credit spreads, investment grade corporates, you know, high yield, some of those things, they're not blowing out. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly surprised they're not blowing out. They're not blowing out. The credit markets are still fairly calm. Believe me, they're a little yellow, maybe not quite red, but they're not seeing a major monster under the bed, which is kind of shocking to me, but it is what it is. And one final comment here, you mentioned bear markets, right? Yeah, down about 30% on average. But if you don't have a recession, all right, the average pullback in a non-recessionary bear market is 24%. Time of recording this, we pulled back about 24%. There could be a little more pain, I'm aware, but it'd be very, very rare if we don't have a recession to see a 30% bear market. It's happened once. In 87, when you had a very stretched rubber band of 40% for the year in August. Oh, and by the way, remember sentiment? We had the least number of bears in history in the AAII poll I cited earlier in August of 87. Now we've got like the most bears in history two weeks in a row. So think about that when you think about sentiment. And think about the fact that 87 years, 2008, we've come a long way since then. There's so much information. So investors are constantly hearing the drumbeat around recessions, bear markets. And I think that it contributes to the psychology, but you are the chief strategist for Carson Group. Carson Group has a huge network of registered investment advisors across the country that are dealing with individual investors like me. So a lot of them have taken money out of the market or put it somewhere safe, whether it's the dollar, whether it's treasuries, whether it's somewhere under the mattress. Do you get the sense that a lot of the clients in the Carson network want to put money back to work but they're just waiting for the fat pitch. Probably a good point there. And that's true. I mean, I think it's not too different than what a lot of people are seeing, right? We're seeing this and what, you know, what's the fat pitch? I mean, that's the big question. I guess you could say the fat pitch is if inflation really starts to roll over and the Fed can become a little bit more dovish, that could be what we want to see. But again, you know, you mentioned, you know, the dollar. I mean, my goodness, if you ask me what's the biggest surprise this year, I guess I probably wouldn't have assumed stocks would be this week. But I'll tell you, the dollar strength is the one thing, right? This is the best year the dollar has ever had. 97 was the other year the dollar was kind of in this ballpark, and that was Asian contagion and some major problems. Now, stocks did okay in 97, but they started to get pretty volatile. So so there's definitely some scenarios um, you know, with the dollar being being surprising. But but at the same time, you know, what we're trying to stress to to our partners and our advisors is this. You know, this is a you know, this is cliche, and I know, but it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? If you're gonna sell right now to get out and go into gold or go into the dollar or go into cash. You better have a real good plan there to get back in because, again, this this beach ball is really, really under the water. Once it can get going, it can get going. Just one one more quote on there, sat on this. So it's a midterm year. We knew coming into the year midterm years aren't that great. We also know one year off of the lows of a midterm year, and I get it. No one knows when that low is. You know, It could be early October for all I know, which maybe it will be. But one year off those lows, the S&P is up 33% on average, higher every single time. So just kind of be aware of that. One year after a midterm election, all right? It's every year since World War II, so that first week in November. Stocks are higher every single time, up 14% on average. Some of those years aren't up a ton, I get it. But the seasonals are there. One more, I can go all day on this stuff. One more on this. You look at a new president, all right? The second year for a new president, S&P is up like 2%, by far the worst year. 
You know, the best year, the third year up over 20%. And I get it. Everyone's worried about a recession next year. Totally can't disagree with it. Maybe we'll have a mild recession next year. I'll just say this. Maybe that from an, believe me, for the economy, the recessions are not good. But from a stock market point of view, if we have a mild recession, that's kind of what's being priced in. The Fed is talking about that without saying it in essence. We're pricing in at least a, at least a mild recession, maybe even a good-sized recession right now. So it's a mild one. That could be something that the market takes positively because then we can look to the future, which is more growth down the road. Right. We do have earnings season coming up in a few weeks here. It's not going to be good. The outlook's not going to be good. Companies from FedEx all the way down are already warning about it. Nike oversupplied. Everybody's having their issues and it seems to be cleaning out the dirty laundry right now. Are investors pricing that in or is this wave of bad news that's going to come in the next four to six weeks going to be the other gut punch that takes us a leg down potentially? Great question there. I guess as a glass half full type of guy, I think a lot of it is probably priced in. I mean, you mentioned FedEx is interesting. So FedEx has been around since I believe the mid 70s. That stock's been cut in half four times. Every time there was a recession, their stock was just cut in half again. Not a recommendation on, on FedEx, but you know, just something to be aware of. But then is it company specific? Is it not? You know, UPS hasn't had the same issues that FedEx has. So so believe me, there's there's different ways to look at it. But going back to earnings here, you know, we've absolutely seen uh some earnings estimates cut, but you know, earnings estimates for this year, 2022, are exactly right now where they were at the start of the year. We had earnings estimates go up early in the year, and now they're coming back down a little bit. So it's not like we've had this major shift in views on, on earnings, but again. Again, what corporate America's got to say will be interesting. And it, like always, we'll meet some winners and some losers, some big blowups and successes when it comes to earnings season. But we're still pretty optimistic the consumer is still quite healthy here. Let's get to the future because I love looking at the future with you. What happens once the bear market is over? We don't know when it's going to happen, but typically good things are on the other side of these. Well, that's right. You know, the Dow's been trading since 18, I think it's May 24th. 1896. The Dow has come back to a new high every time. We don't think this time is going to be much different. But the way we're positioning our portfolios for our advisors at Carson Group on the investment team is this. We like value over growth still. We still see some issues with growth, a little overvalued. There could be a slip up with growth earnings, actually, in our opinion, technology specifically. So we kind of have a two-pronged approach. Yes, we still like some of the defensive areas, utilities and staples, because who knows what's going to happen? But I'll tell you, on the other side of things, your industrials and energy, those are some those are some nice groups we think they can do well um, if the economy can kind of come out of this and, and start to grow in the bear market in. So we're overweight value. And I'll tell you also just U.S. In our tactical models, we are more even weight as it comes to stocks. But when we look around the globe in our tactical models, we're overweight U.S. relative to developed international, relative to emerging markets. Some of those same concerns, new relative lows coming in. It's like catching a falling knife. Been doing it for like 20 years now. So we still think the U.S. is the place to be. And we'd still side with a value here over the next 12 months, kind of with that two-pronged approach. You touched on it earlier, but let's button it up a little bit. Is the Fed going to break something here? They don't seem afraid to do it. They've warned of pain coming ahead. They know what higher interest rates mean for households, especially lower income households, but they also know how bad inflation is for lower income households too. But are they going to break something here? Or do you think they're going to, it's going to be a hard landing, but are we going to have some broken bones? Might break a leg on the way down, I guess you could say, but hopefully we survive it. And, and I'll put it like this, the Fed, you, what usually happens, right? When you have that dollar strength, the problem is overseas, right? We've had the issues overseas. And what just happened with the pound and it's, and it's taking place in, and with our friends in the UK, that's where some of the problems start. And the Fed said it in 1971, it wasn't the Fed, sorry, it's John Connolly in charge of the um, Treasury, said when we severed the dollar from gold, it's our currency, but it's your problem. 
That's been the Fed's opinion and the U.S. opinion about debt and our currency for a very long time. So we're, we're kind of upsetting Apple Card overseas right now with what's going on with some potentially some of our policy. But I think we, we're still optimistic the Fed does not want to repeat 2008, and maybe they can take the foot off the gas a little bit. And that could be viewed as a positive here as we head into uh, 2023. Yeah, never has the Fed, well, I would say never, but never has the Fed had this much scrutiny and this many eyeballs on it, just because there's more eyeballs out there. But every decision, every data point actually matters. You know, we used to just blow through the CPI and the PCE numbers. Now, that's dinner table conversation. So everybody's thinking about it. Just as we wrap up here, Ryan, and I so appreciate your counsel and your perspective, if there's a few words or a term an investing term that investors should embrace right now. What's so important besides patience? How do you, would you counsel individual investors? What is the investing term or the formula they need to be thinking about right now as they approach the end of the year and are just trying to shake themselves out of this grip of fear that we're all in? Yeah, I guess volatility is the price of admission is what I'm thinking of here. I mean, it's you know, believe me, we all were spoiled with a 120% rally off the COVID lows. But markets don't always go up. They don't always go down either, right? These things, they take time. And when you have a rally like that, you have a, you can have some correction and use it as an opportunity to reach your long-term goals. And the other thing, have a plan in place before it happens. Eisenhower said plans are useless, but planning is everything. Have a plan. If we start to rally here, don't let the market just go away from you, right? There, there could be more of a rally. And if there's more weakness, what are you going to do? Don't react in the moment. Have that plan in place ahead of time. And that's easier said than done, I'll admit. But again, if you do it, things will be a lot easier for you. I couldn't agree more. And I've been through enough of these to know that what it starts to smell like when things are changing, you got to have that plan in place. And you're so good at counseling investors on that. And some great advice coming out of the Carson Group in general. Ryan Dietrich, I feel better. I'm so glad we got to talk and share your perspective with our listeners. So good to see you, my friend. And congrats on the new job. And welcome back to Cincinnati. Uh, thank you very much. I feel better, too, because the Bengals started 0-2. Now we're 2-2. Two and two. We're over the Super Bowl hangover. Now let's hope the stock market can get over the hangover and start following the lead with Joe Burrow. Here's to a winning season. And so good to see you, my friend. Thanks for joining the Express. Thank you. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. We just heard Ryan Dietrich's favorite term of the moment, but Tim reached out to us at our email podcast at investopedia.com and he says he's always hearing the phrase is priced in. For example, the dividend is already priced in. How do you know when something is priced in and what does that mean, he asks? Well, great question, Tim. It actually means a few things, so let's break it down. According to my favorite website, when we say that something is priced into a company's stock price, we mean that investors are pricing the stock, taking into account all the factors that will affect the company in the future. That's also referred to as discounting the price of a stock given the foreseeable future. That foreseeable future could include good or bad news on the horizon, like a recession, a change in pricing, increased competition, rising or falling margins, things like that. As for pricing in the dividend, we think you might be referring to what happens to stock options when a company pays out its dividend on the ex-dividend day. That's the first trading day where an upcoming dividend payment is not included in a company's stock price. Stocks generally fall by the amount of the dividend payment on the ex-dividend date. This movement impacts the pricing of its options. Call options, for example, become less expensive leading up to the ex-dividend date because of the expected fall in price of the underlying stock. As this happens, we say that the decline in price for those call options is already priced in, in that it reflects the upcoming decline in the company's actual share price. Great suggestion, Tim. A pair of hot new Investopedia socks are coming your way just in time for corduroy season. 
We're going to let Jack Bogle take us out this week. I need his steadying hand and his deep voice at a time like this. And here he is in an interview I saw circulating on Twitter, counseling investors on what to do during steep market drops, especially when the ice feels like it's getting thinner by the moment. We're going to link to that Twitter post. And if anyone knows where this comes from, let me know so we can drop in the proper credit. The one piece of advice I would categorically give to everybody, for God's sake, don't stop a program of regular investing because the market goes down you're killing the whole value of dollar cost averaging. And it may go down for a few more years, who really knows? But so so much the better when you're putting money in every month, because it will come back. Uh, I think we're in a little dangerous territory now, as I, as I tell people. Uh, but And the 25% drop, 35% drop is easily possible. It's always possible, just because markets are markets. So I think the questioner is right to say, you know, what should I do? And I guess the answer generally is, um, don't do something, just stand there. We can stand there and do nothing. I love it. Special thanks to Ryan Dietrich for climbing back aboard the Express with us this week. He always brings the proper perspective. And thanks again to YCharts for sponsoring this episode of the Express. If you chart like we chart, check out YCharts. We use them in our newsletters and their research is top notch as well. We'll post a transcript to our conversation with Ryan and all the reports we cited in the show in the show notes, which you can find wherever you listen to this podcast and on investopedia.com slash the Express podcast. Let's go October. We got this and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. <music>